Okay. Sorry, guys. Hello. Let's do that Can again from me? the top. Oh, hello, everyone. Welcome back <laughs> <laughs> to the Between Reality VR podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here with us. And um, hell, I'm excited to be here. You know, it's been three weeks, I think, since we have uh, done an episode. We took a little bit of a break, did a little bit of traveling, uh, but we are back and we are very excited uh, to be back up and running. My name is Alex VR. I am co-host of the show and I am joined here, as always, by my co-host, Skiva. Skiva, how you doing, dude? I'm good, man. So today, I don't think it's any. Um, I don't think there's any hiding that I'm a little sick. Uh, I got some con crud, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna. But we're gonna do this, man. I'm ready. I'm pumped. And I'm jazzed. So I'm excited to be back. Yes, me too. You know, we are remote today. I think it's obvious because yep. my arm is like reaching out of the frame and all of that shit. So we're remote <laughs> today. Um, you know, we both got sick in Los Angeles or I mean in Las, Las Vegas, Vegas yeah. as well as like a million people. Um, yep. You know, we kind of knew that there was an opportunity for us to get sick going there, but um, I don't regret going. It was, yeah. I had an amazing time. For I know sure. Steve had an amazing time too, right? I did, man. It, it was absolutely amazing. The connections that were made and the people that we got to hang out with and the tech we got to try were just were just worth worth everything worth feeling like like crap for a few days so yeah yeah, yeah it definitely was but you know i missed doing the show and uh, frankly, I missed you, you know, because I was super busy during the convention. You're busy during the convention. And, you know, I was in Michigan for a week before mm -hmm. we went to Vegas. And now I've been a, basically a corpse for the past week laying around <laughs> being sick as hell and getting over everything. But I'm feeling much stronger with every day. And uh, I think it's only a matter of time before we can put this part behind us and uh, get back to uh, crushing it and not feeling like shit. Heck yeah, man. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah <laughs> So, you know, today is, um, is, is exciting. Obviously, we're back, right? We're, we're here. We're doing another episode, which we love always. But uh, I particularly love it when we are joined by today's guest. He is, in my opinion, one of the most forward-thinking and smartest dudes in the, in the XR space. I know we're all very lucky to have him because, as, uh, as you know, we are very aware of the implications of the technology that we all love, virtual reality. Um, but not everyone's trying to be forward-thinking about it, right? A lot of people are just kind of blindly walking into the darkness, and uh, it would help if we had some people out there who maybe tried to get ahead of some of these things, right, and think about how uh, we can approach this emerging immersive technology ethically and morally and in a way that will make sense for all of us. So let's just get them on, right? Heck yeah. Please, everyone, welcome to Between Realities for the third time, Mr. Kent Bai. Hello, sir. Hey, everybody. It's great to be here. Um, thanks for having me back, Alex and Skiva. It's great to just come back and talk about the not only the potentials, but also the perils of the technology and uh, what the ultimate potentials are, uh, and also the philosophical implications, which is also, I think, an uh, interest that we both share. So I'm excited to to dig into all sorts of things today. Me nice. too. You know, too. it's like, mm -hmm. I feel like we, like, I don't know. 
we love the philosophical implications of, of all of this stuff, right? And we love to think about all of the ethical stuff, but a lot of times I kind of just feel like, I don't know, like I'm just like some hippie stoner sitting in his backyard being like, oh man, this is so crazy, you know? And when I have you on, <laughs> when we have you on and, and people like you, it kind of like maybe gives a little bit of like legitimacy to some of those thoughts that I have, you know? It's like, okay, maybe I'm not like so crazy for thinking all this, or maybe I'm not just high, you know? Like maybe some of this stuff is actually um, really, really profound and really, really exciting and something that we really should be paying uh, closer attention to. So thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to just give a shout out to David Chalmers's new book. It's coming out on January 25th. It's called Reality Plus, uh, you know, Virtual Worlds and the the Problems of Philosophy. And, you know, what I learned from, you know, I read the book and had an interview with him, but one of the things that really stuck out was just how much the these issues of virtual worlds kind of go back to like Descartes in 1641. And even before that, in terms of if there was some uh, other women who were talking about uh, these ideas of virtual demons, but he would all talk about, you know, what if our reality was being controlled by a virtual demon um, and all of our sense perceptions, then it would be kind of an illusionary reality. So since then, we've kind of been living in a philosophical context where if there is an evil demon controlling everything that you're thinking, then that's a fake and illusionary world. Now we fast forward until today where we have viable consumer virtual reality technologies where we essentially have our senses that are being kind of tricked in, in some ways. And so there's a question as to, you know, even in the scientific community, reference to those things as like the place illusion and the plausibility illusion and the virtual body ownership illusion, this illusionary language that is kind of establishing that there's a difference between what our experiences are in these virtual spaces. And it's kind of creating a lot of times these false dichotomies between what reality is and what the virtualness of it is. And what I think what Chalmers is trying to argue in this book is that we should, instead of saying that it's this contrast between the virtual and the real, and it's more of a contrast between the physicality and the virtuality, and that they're both realities, they're just, they're both genuine realities and, but there's still differences between those two. And so how do you navigate the differences between our physicality and the virtuality? And so, yeah, it's sort of, if we only say that what's real is the physical stuff of the world, then you start to get away from what our experience of that world is, which doesn't always have a connection to some sort of physical, tangible thing. It can be experiential or, or consciousness. So yeah, it's like not to dig too deep into uh, things, but uh, we're you know, that's what this. comes up. This is so good. Everybody, this is going to be a fucking awesome episode because this is like, like I said, this is going to be an opportunity for uh, us to get some of these like, whoa, dude, thoughts and like wrangle them in and like give something, put some fuel behind them, you know, and, and kind of give some uh, uh, maybe like a scholarly perspective or a scholarly context to some of these thoughts. And maybe uh, we can learn how to approach these subjects a little bit better so we can continue to have important conversations that will hopefully lead to the right decisions being made. So hang in, everybody, because this is going to be amazing. And by the way, all of you who are joining us here live for this broadcast right now are amazing. We've got Quick Cosplay. How you doing? Quick Cosplay. It's, hope you're What's feeling up? so much better. I know that you'll mm -hmm. be joining us back in VR very soon. So thanks for joining us. Um, we've got D1360 VR. What's up, dude? Thanks for being here. Gamer tag, pass the bowl. Come on, man. <laughs> Come hang out. <laughs> uh, VR with Jasmine's here. Yes, up, Jazz? obscure nerd VR. Yes, our Andy. friends who we got to What's hang up? out with in Vegas. Heck yeah. 
So good to see you. Um, Ashley Huffman, thanks for joining us up, from the Ashley? Haptics Club. I just watched her Haptics Club uh, on Twitter. She does Twitter spaces, Haptics Club. Go check it out. Um, Sweaty Nugget, JJ's been here. Short Stack VR has been here. Chrome and Snare, uh, Angie McCown, you're on mute. Oh, thanks. We knew. We figured that out sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Mesh Eddie Cool, Mr. Survivor. Um, Robin, hello. Jansen Fox. Um, Dude, thank you guys all so much for being here. Dark Angel. What's up? What's uh, up, everyone? Who, who am I missing? Anybody, Skiva? Oh, man. I think I think you got the majority. Yeah, PD? You know, I see some P. Diddy in, in there. Yet, you know, you messed up. You know, you got to get in early. <laughs> if you want to get that, that shout out, you got to say something. You know? So <laughs> thank you guys for being here and uh, participating in the chat. So before we just dive down the rabbit hole, because once we go down... There's no coming back up. I'm surprised we actually made it back to the surface after that little intro spot. Mm -hmm. um, we were at CES, and I know Skiva has just been chomping at the bit to share some of his experiences yeah, man. Uh, from being in Vegas. For real. We had, we had such a good time, first of all. I mean, I mean, this conference is absolutely mind-blowing. For anyone that hasn't been to CES, it is, it is, it, you can't grasp how large this conference is unless you go there and see it, right? Because it takes up the entire Las Vegas Convention Center, which is many, many halls. You have to drive to each hall, right? But plus, then you have to go from hotel to hotel where it takes up the entire convention center for like the Venetian and some other hotels. So it is absolutely massive and it's full with some of the most mind-bending technology that, that really isn't even available to the general public. Public yet, right? A lot of this stuff is concept stuff. A lot of it is is on its way and it's coming. And some of it is available that you can buy now. But uh, it, it's it's just phenomenal. And we saw some amazing, amazing things. Um, you know, we 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 saw um, we saw some stuff. For example, um, like like a new haptic suit um, that is. Let me see. I get used to these buttons again. Jeez. Um, <laughs> Come on! I know, right? So, so I have. I did an interview here, and if you guys haven't uh, checked out our channel lately, uh, there's an interview up on our channel for OWO, which is a new type of haptic suit which uses electric electro stimulation to kind of zap your muscles, as opposed to like be haptics, right? Which we're all familiar with and we love. Um, and, and it kind of stimulates your muscles and makes them contract and it kind of zaps you, right? And it can simulate all kinds of feelings from, from bullet entries and exits out your back to, to being cut to uh, just all kinds of wild stuff. And the closest thing to something like this is, uh, is the Tesla suit which yep. we did also get to hang out with the Tesla suit people, um, did, a, did an after party with them um, and, and really got to connect with them a little bit and had a really good time. Um, so, you know, if you want to learn more about this OO suit, it's really, really cool. Head on over to our channel, maybe after this show, right? And, uh, and, and, and check it out. Have you worn the Tesla suit or, or the OO? Suit, uh, the I have I've done the Tesla suit at South by Southwest and it did feel like when I tried it, like getting electrocuted, it wasn't a pleasant like experience. No, it's not pleasant, is it? It mm -hmm. hurts. Yeah. Just like getting shot would not be a good thing, right? <laughs> getting stabbed, all these feelings, definitely not a good thing, but they don't full on electrocute you for every single thing that happens, right? So like, you know, there's rain simulations where you just feel the, 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 the trickle of the rain and then you feel the water kind of running down you. It's, it's really wild. It's really, really cool. Um, you have to, you know, you have to be bare underneath the shirt, right? Because it uses contact to your skin and, um, and stimulates your muscles, but it's really, really cool. And a Tesla suits like, like $13,000, right? 
this OWO suit is um, is only like $450 is what they're trying to come out with this at. So, Crazy and competitive price. Right. It's a really, really competitive price. Right, right. So it, very, very exciting stuff um, that I I was super, super excited um, uh, to play with. And I know a lot of people that were there with us really, really liked this. You know, Thrill has been raving on about it. Um, you know, VR Jasmine tried it and Z Storm and, and all these people and everyone really, really seemed to enjoy it a lot. So Dude, it was... I had a great time. I was laughing my ass off during the demo. Straight yeah. Like it was really, really fun. But <laughs> that being said, I just, I am curious as to like how, if, if and how it will actually be successful because yeah. It's like the only time I can imagine wanting that level of consequence for like getting hit is like in a training simulation where like it actually matters, you know, like right. whereas like you're trying right. to train someone in like an oil rig and, you know, when it blows up, it actually hurts. Like pain is a pretty powerful teacher, so I can see it being a somewhat successful tool for training or teaching something um but like i froze my ass off when i put that thing on those sensor (laughs) part pads or like like a gel sticky pad or whatever and i was like shivering as i was as i was zipping that thing up so that's funny um and then of course it is uncomfortable when you do get electrocuted by this stuff but it is a pretty real sensation it's way closer to actually what it feels like to getting hit by a dart or stabbed i yeah. imagine i've never been stabbed um than something like the vibral tactile tactile motors of the behaptics vest um but of course i do see that something like the behaptics vest being just making a lot more sense for a typical consumer oh for sure for sure but this this type of tech is super fun right and it's the ground level of something more along the lines of a Ready Player One suit, something you'd see in a science fiction movie, right? So it's pretty cool. Um, but what you were saying with pain is actually pretty funny because because when we did go to that Tesla suit party, um, we we mentioned uh, we 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 had the guy actually we put Z Storm in this suit, right? As you see here on screen, and uh, had them crank it up pretty high and see what he could take for his pain tolerance. And it was really, really funny to watch Z-Storm games uh, get electrocuted uh, <laughs> via, via the Tesla suit guys. And I'm sure they probably wouldn't be super stoked uh, for us showing this because I don't think they're really supposed to do this. But it was really funny. And, and, and as you see with Z-Storm's reactions here, this is very, this is very real. Like he can't, he can't control his muscles when they crank this up and, and hit him with it. Like right there, he just hit, punched himself in the head, right? I mean, so this is this is pretty serious stuff, um, and and also very very funny. So, <laughs> <laughs> but let's see, what else do we have here? So some of the other tech that we got to try out, um, I got to try out a couple of really really cool headsets, like the Vario VR three and also the Pico Neo three, both using um, an Ultra Leap uh, hand tracker. Uh, which is really cool because it uses it uses a different kind of technology uh, to track your hands uh, and and you know occlusion isn't quite you know what it would be on on an Oculus Quest for example uh, but these headsets were really cool to try the Ultra Leap tech was really really neat to try because hand tracking um, has a very bright future in virtual reality right we we like to think of you know shooting guns and playing games with each other um, but you know that's only part of what virtual reality has to offer you know we have training and and work things right this is all going to be uh, a very big part of, of what VR has in store for us. Um, we also did get to see, um, as you see here on the screen, uh, the links, but unfortunately it was broken. I only got to film it, touch it, 
try it on, but it, it didn't actually work. Um, so you are seeing the links here up on the screen. But between that and the, and the Vario XR3, for anyone that doesn't know what that is, that's a human retina resolution headset. Um, there is no screen door. You can't, I mean, it is, it is about the clearest thing you will ever see in VR and it is wild. It was also it has, or what? it was unreal, dude. It was absolutely unreal. And, and I got to try the, um, <clears throat> mixed reality, right? Where they, obviously they, they have full color pass through cameras, right? Where they bring through the real world. And then the objects that are in the real world are absolutely crystal clear. There's no, there's no, um, no sign of pixels anywhere. It's very, very convincing and very wild. And combined, combined with the ultra leap hand tracking, it was a very surreal and wild experience. Um, Have you done this one, Kent? Have you put the Vario on? Yeah, I've done both the Vario and the Lynx. Uh, when I went to AWE, um, I was able to try out all a lot of the latest tech that was, you know, also featured there at CES. And for me, the the Lynx was a lot more impressive in terms of the mixed reality device than the Vario. Just because the Vario has the um, cameras that are offset from your eyes, which creates a little bit of a proprioceptive disconnect between what you're seeing in the perspective versus what you saw in the links. With the links was a lot closer to your eyes, and it was much more convincing to see that through the links. Um, so yeah, I've I've seen a number of different things over the years, and there's always this kind of disembodied disconnect, this disconnection from my proprioceptive you know sense, like there's an offset. And it's right. difficult to to know, but when you have that offset, it's like a, it's kind of like a presence can often be a house of cards, and you can get used to it, and you can adapt. But it can also be like you know a you know pulling out the the bottom card and the whole stack falling down because you don't believe it's plausible because there's something that's a little bit off. And that was my experience with the Vario, at least, was that it was very high resolution, but it, you almost do a little bit better with the links that's lower resolution but has less of that disconnect, but also has this more seamless transition between the virtual reality and the augmented reality with the links. Wow. And that bums me out. It bums me out even more that the links was broken when I was there (laughs) because I really, really wanted to try it. You know, well, we... I got to try. I didn't get to do too much because I was I spent most of my time at the Behaptics booth at CES. But on the last day, they like cut me loose for a couple hours, and I ran around and just like did as many demos as I could. Mm-hmm. And I jumped onto the Xtal, and um, I mm. was able to look at the color pass through of the Xtal, the Xtal three, and it looked amazing. Like it looked like a high quality video of my hands. But to Kent's point, it still I still felt like there was like you know, like a serious like disconnect and I can get used to it and learn to interact with my environment. But I still think that that probably has a ways to go as well before it like delivers that well, sense of presence of me being in both spaces at once. Well, let me tell you. So, so I did a full, um, I did a full XTAL demo, um, where I got in an actual cockpit with a fighter pilot, like with an mm. actual guy, right. That was like helping me fly this plane. And, um, and my experience was, was pretty, was pretty moving, right? So, so what this thing does, I'm trying to just pull up some footage here because I didn't have that one ready for some weird reason, but, um, but what I did was I got inside of a fighter pilot cockpit, like a full blown motion simulator, um, um, dealio, right. And I, um, and the headset has a. Uh, a pass-through system, right? That is able to cut out some of some of the 
um, some of the real world and put partial VR and partial mixed reality in, right? So, so I got in this cockpit and the cockpit I was seeing and all the switches and buttons were real, right? And they were right there built in front of me and I could flick switches and I could grab the yoke and I could see my hands and I could look next to me and I could see my co-pilot, but everything else was wide field of view, high definition virtual reality. And wow, man, that was one of the coolest experiences in VR that I've had. Nice. Period, right? I mean, it was wild. But I mean, this isn't something, even if you bought an XTAL 3, right, for, for over 10 grand, um, and you brought it home, you're not going to get this experience because this had a, a super expensive uh, six-off motion um, rig you know, with, with a full cockpit built into it and, and all the controls, as you can see here on the screen, right? So this is, this is a pretty serious thing, but what they use this for obviously is, is training pilots. Um, so, so to a lot of, a lot of different companies, this is absolutely worth it, right? Because they, they're actually able to, um, to, um, uh, rack up air miles while training in virtual reality without, mm -hmm. uh, the risk of crashing planes and destroying equipment and, and, and hurting people. Right. So, so this is, this is kind of a big deal. And, um, the way it was able to blend VR with real life, um, was in track as I'm moving and track where real life, where the object was in real life compared to what it should be showing me in virtual reality was absolutely unreal. Nice. And this, you know, this just showed me really that, um, that our future in this technology is so unbelievably bright, uh, with, you know, with companies like the VR engineers that, um, that are able to make all of this stuff, right. They're not even using, uh, you know, custom, uh, they're not even using Fresnel lenses like you would get, uh, that a lot of companies buy from, from mass production, uh, places to put on their headsets. They have they have created the lenses by themselves. They have done a lot of this technology by themselves because it doesn't exist anywhere else. So, mm -hmm. um, so it was really, it was really cool. Um, so I could see where like the typical mixed reality might not be as cool, right? But when you pair it with, with showing only specific items and blending it with the rest of the world being virtual reality, it, it melted my brain a little bit. It was really, it was really, really neat. Hell yeah. So, That's great, man. And you know, yeah. uh, you know, something that you said before we started the show today um, was that like it is amazing to be able to go to these conventions and to try all this hardware, to you know, meet the people who do all these things, and to kind of get a glimpse into the future as to where things are going. Um, but at the end of the day, we really do go for the people. Yes, you know, like it was absolutely so great to see so many familiar faces um, in the VR community, and we saw so many of them like i almost don't want to start listing people's names off because i don't want to forget anybody but there's like so many incredible people who are here in the chat who we got to see in vegas and uh yeah it was phenomenal absolutely and and you know maybe we can here's a here's a quick picture we threw an after party on friday night uh, after the convention um was over and it was it was just it was absolutely amazing to just be able to connect a little more with some of these people right that we interact with on the internet all the time but there's there's just something so much more bonding if you will about you know face-to-face -face time with some people right i mean mm -hmm. we hung out all night with, with thrill seeker and fia and v bunny go and Hambone and vr with jasmine and Sweeviver and gingus vr and uh and z storm games and kevin henderson of pimax and david heaney of upload vr uh obscure nerd andy jansen fox vivian chazen um 
uh, Eric of Virtual Strangers and QTC, um, the Haptic Solutions Cilia team, uh, Danny Rayleigh. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. It's absolutely insane. And we just had a fucking blast. Like we, we really did. It, it, was, did. it was so amazing. And we got to connect and, and really solidify a lot of these relationships. Right. And, um, you know, and just throughout the entire conference, the entire conference yeah. was all about meeting and connecting with people and, and building those relationships. Right. So I, that's what the important I, part honestly, is. Honestly, I absolutely live for it. You know, and it's like, I feel like that's been the case ever since I started, first started going to conventions. And I tell this story often, but when I went to OC6, I was running around with a microphone trying to connect with as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And there was one person who I noticed was running around with a microphone harder than me. And it was this guy right here, Kent Bobby. Yep. I didn't know who he was at the time, but I did see him with his microphone in about 20 to 30 different faces. Just like he'd be like sitting Indian style in the corner of a hallway with a microphone in like Nathie's face, <laughs> you know, like at an after party or something like he Kent, you were everywhere. And, um, you are recently you've you've been celebrated you've just recently celebrated a thousand published episodes of the voices of vr podcast so congratulations for that what's even more mind-blowing for us is that we know that there's maybe twice that many recorded interviews waiting to be published which is like almost staggering to even think about but um i mean i'm sure you can share our sentiment when it comes to connecting with people in real life at uh events like this yeah, well, the Voices of VR podcast was really born out of the very first, you know, consumer gathering, you know, resurgence of VR back in May of 2014 at the Silicon Valley Virtual Reality Conference and Expo. This was the one-year anniversary of the SVVR meetup, and they wanted to bring the community together. And I went there and did like 45 interviews with people because I wanted to just capture this as a moment in history that I just felt that was destined to be like a revolutionary new technology. And I've attended somewhere between 70 to 80 uh, physical events over the last seven plus years. Um, and then uh, well over 100, if you include all the virtual ones as well. And so, yeah, I think there there has been a, you know, I would say the the golden era of the the conferences were from 2014 to 2019, you know, the very beginnings of 2020 was Sundance was the last one that I really went to. And then Augmented World Expo was the one that I, I picked up uh, again but I think it's a different time, you know, like it's in a different phase where most of the, like I attended CES in 2017. And my sense was that even though there was a lot of technologies from independent companies, either they're going to be acquired by one of the big companies or they were going to kind of shutter and we'd never hear from them again, or they'd be from a completely different ecosystem, like in China, which is a whole other world where um, I think when I, I, don't I'm not as interested in CES anymore just because it is on the bleeding edge of consumer tech and it's a little bit of like if it's successful then it'll probably end up at other places like Augmented World Expo or something that I might end up going to but CES on the scale of it is just kind of you know unreasonable in some fashion yeah. because not only do they have all of the different places but they also have companies that don't feel like paying for the spots and so they have you go into the hotels and check out stuff but um, looking back historically, a lot of those uh, more often than not don't end up surviving. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not they're going to be able to make a play. There was a time period when the Oculus was showing there and it was like a, you know, a period where there was a lot of explosions. But, um, you know, since then, I think it's uh, the technology has kind of settled down where now it's haptic peripherals and, you know, augmented reality glasses. But we have the big players that are going to be coming out with a lot of those things. And 
Um, so yeah, you get a sense of the technology, but also the big, big players also um, end up pulling out of some of these places like as well. So you don't get to see like their latest gear, what they're up to. Um, but yeah, I think the, 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 my journey uh, into VR was to going to these different places and then capture a little bit of that oral history. And the episode 1000 is, is a way of kind of taking, taking a look back to look at the full breadth and scope of what people are doing within the virtual reality technologies. Right. So when you started, you know, at S, uh, SVVR, you know, like, hey, this is an important moment. You know, these are important people, potentially. I am going to do my best to just capture this, almost like freeze frame this moment so people can kind of go back and, and relive through that. It, has that kind of been your goal of the Voices of VR podcast now? Like as you're hitting, you know, 1,000 episodes, I heard like 16 or 1,700 interviews or something like that. Like, is that still kind of your goal just to like capture it? Or do you find that you are trying to accomplish more as a result of, of what you're doing? Well, I think the the method that I would have would be very embodied in terms of going to these places and seeing what is arising and so it's when you go to events like this, you kind of hear the zeitgeist, you feel a zeitgeist that is moving, especially if there's a critical mass of the industry that's there. Um, so it's capturing that, but also like there's questions around experiential design. Like what is, how do you create experiences and um, what is the full range of different experiences and the different ways of understanding that? And I think that my approach was to try to see a, a diversity of those different things to get like a foundation experiential design to say, like, what is the medical going to be adding to the experience? What is the uh, educational context? What is the training context bringing in? Uh, so you have different, you know, phases of like an idea that's proven out academically. You have the enterprise applications, and then you have the uh, consumer context. But in order to get to that consumer context, it has to go through the, all these variety of different types of enterprise context. And so, you know, part of my strategy was just to see all those different context and have as many different experiences as I, as I could to try to boil down like an experiential design framework to understand, okay, this is what we're taking from biometric data from, you know, brain computer interfaces and neuroscience from the medical field. And then you, the gaming context. And then, you know, so there's a fusion of all these different design disciplines that has been happening. Um, so that was a big part of it is, is that, you know, from everybody who's kind of sufficiently advanced in their own industry, if they're thinking about VR, they're trying to figure out and maybe have a unique perspective that we've never seen before as these different people from different, you know, backgrounds come in. So a lot of it has been to kind of document that and to see these different things emerge based upon that just embodied practice of showing up at these places and to talk to the people who were there to find these deeper trends. But I think over time, there's also like more of a philosophical uh, take in terms of what this all means, what the ultimate potential is, where is this going? What can we do with this technology? What are the limits and what are the more ethical considerations? Uh, you know, starting in 2016, uh, in May, in April of that year, Upload VR had reported that you know one of the things with Oculus was reporting back, and it was not sure what type of data they were sending back. And so, Upload wrote an article. Senator Al Franken got involved, and then started to you know question Oculus: What are you doing in terms of privacy with these new technologies? And I think at the Silicon Valley Virtual Reality Conference in 2016, there was a buzz about like the hallway conversation was all about, oh my God, this technology could have all these really scary ethical implications. And so that's when the privacy track just sort of organically emerged from the community. And then as I was discussing it, it ended up being a really intractable problem about what are we going to do with the future of 
our these technologies and how they're going to be encroaching in our privacy. And like I had mentioned to you, there's this a uh, film on Netflix called Don't Look Up, which is all about like this allegory of a comet that's coming and is going to destroy all the earth. And there's these scientists who are kind of trying to warn the public that there is this big comet that's going to destroy everything in the in the world. And the the kind of larger media ecosystem and also the political ecosystem doesn't really sufficiently respond and to this challenge. And so sometimes it feels like that when talking about like privacy when XR, because it feels like this comet that's like hurtling towards us and where that some ways we're kind of sleepwalking into a dystopia with not really having protections for how we're going to prevent this from happening. If we change nothing, then it's almost inevitable that we're going to be living into a future that's going to be really dystopic. And so when I wake up in the morning or at the beginning of the year, I just, I feel like this unsettledness in my stomach that despite having conversations about this for five and a half years, there's still no real good solution to this as a problem. And we still are kind of like sleepwalking into dystopia. Um, so that's a big part of, you know, the, the part of it, but there's other things about like Sundance Film Festival and going and looking at all those experiences and seeing what the artists are doing and seeing what the creatives are doing. If there's any one thing that I'd say is a consistent thing, it's to, to listen to the artists and see where the artists are taking the medium and to see what's coming next by seeing what the kind of artists who are on the cutting edge what they're thinking about the medium and what they want to do with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, I kind of feel like, you know, XR privacy and Kent buy are kind of like these like synonymous things at this point, you know, um, I feel like if, if the conversation comes up that like your, your um, contributions to the space at this point are already pretty well, um, you know, seen and uh, well-respected, um, you know, I, what I think is really cool about kind of where you found yourself in this situation is that like you, you using the analogy of a comment, um, I'll use one of like an impending army, you know, like, let's say we know that we're about to be invaded by an army and like, there could be people like Skiva and I who can can hear you talking about that army and are like okay yes let's let's fight then like we'll we'll fight you know but like we don't know how to fight you know like we have no we don't have the tools we don't have swords and shields and we don't even know what, what an opposing army looks like you know what i mean and i think what a lot of what you do is kind of give people like training courses for that battle a little bit you know like i feel like you're kind of trying to create the groundwork for us to approach these situations and like almost teaching us how to think about these things as they start to unfold. Does that sound uh, close to kind of the position that you found yourself in? I think what I found like, so yeah, I think what you you're, you're correct in the sense of my, my goal is to try to create some sense making frameworks to help tell a larger story so that you can see a picture and to kind of understand the different dynamics. Uh, but the process of getting those pictures have involved like, hundreds of conversations and trying to kind of get to the gist of these different dynamics. Like as an example of that's probably the most clear in 2018, there was a um, kind of a, um, a privacy summit that I helped co-organize with Jessica Outlaw and uh, Philip Rosedale and uh, Jeremy Balenson. And so Stanford high fidelity, and then, you know, two uh, independent folks with myself and Jessica, we brought together 50 different people from the VR industry. And we wanted to basically come up with a bill of rights for privacy. 
And so I think the idea was that if we just get everybody in the room and talk about it for like six to eight hours, we'll be able to kind of, you know, sort this out and figure out a, a good direction. And what the outcome was, was that like privacy is so contextually dependent that to even come up with a comprehensive definition of what privacy is and what it means. And that's a universally generalizable framework for privacy that, you know, that that doesn't exist. In fact, then I eventually went to the American Philosophical Association Eastern meeting in 2019, and Dr. Anita Allen is widely regarded as one of the founders of the philosophy of privacy. And her keynote was that there is no comprehensive framework for privacy. And I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Like here's like the philosophical community who's supposed to be, you know, at the forefront of, of understanding what these problems are and giving us some, some higher level conceptual frameworks. And even one of the founders of philosophy of privacy is saying that we don't have a comprehensive framework for this yet. And so what's that mean? It means that there's companies like Meta and folks that are on the front lines, Google and all these other companies that kind of have to use an outdated uh, idea of privacy from like 1973 of the fair information practice principles, meaning that privacy is defined as your control of information. And as long as we tell you what we're going to be recording uh, and kind of what we're going to be doing with it, then we're all cool. So then you have these adhesion contracts that you sign in and you basically give over all your rights to basically say you can do whatever you want with this data because we want access to these cool toys. But on the other side of it, you lose all your rights to that data. And it's sort of like a settler colonial mindset of kind of seizing all that data and then using it for however they want. You have no recourses to understand what's appropriate use of that information or not. So what ends up happening is that then they're modeling our identity, they're potentially, you know, getting to the point of understanding what's happening inside of our mind with a violation of our mental privacy, uh, modeling that identity, and then potentially creating context and situations where they're going to nudge our behaviors and poten potentially undermine our agency and our uh, kind of our right for intentional actions to make choices. So what's happened is that there's layers of like international law of saying like, we need to create these fundamental human rights of neuro rights that establishes our fundamental rights to identity, our fundamental rights to mental privacy, our fundamental rights to agency. And there's some other ones that they have in terms of right and of, uh, equal access to the technology as well as to be free from algorithmic bias. I, I'd sort of put those to the side to say that those are more of the ecosystem uh, issues, but there's specific neuro, the neurotechnologies that are going to be encroaching onto these aspects of what we're thinking about modeling our identity, and that's going to be very contextually relevant, and then potentially nudging our behaviors. So you have the human rights, and then you have the U.S. federal privacy law that we don't have that is sort of very fragmented, that, that is using this outmoded way of thinking about privacy from 1973. Also, the way they conceive of privacy legally is that it's about your identity, so who you are. So it's about that information leaking out, getting into the wrong hands, and that person figuring out who you are. Uh, so it's all tied to this sort of static uh, idea of who you are as an individual, whereas we're moving into a world where it's much more about this um, contextually relevant information where they understand everything that's happening in that world, and they're watching all of your micro expressions and little transactions and your behaviors and your movements and your emotional, um, you know, what you're feeling and then uh, what you're even thinking potentially, and then your your muscle contractions, all this being sense, you know, fused together to come up with a very fine grained contextually relevant model for what you're thinking and what you value moment to moment. It's much more contextually relevant. Um, and then with that digital twin they're creating and then you know you're in these situations where you 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 may have your privacy undermined
so, so as you start to even lay this out, there's layers of the culture, there's layers of the the laws that need to be set, there's a layer of the cult, the market dynamics, and then eventually your user experience and the tech architectures that are driving that whole loop. Um, so it's to understand how all those things play together is sort of like to understand uh, kind of the 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 sociological and the technological and this this dilemma, which is that we kind of let the innovation happen. You stand back. You don't you don't put any policies too soon because you don't want to stifle innovation. So you let things run free. And then all of a sudden it's too late and this technology is out there and there's no way to control it because the culture is already kind of fully ingrained in this new reality. So that's kind of like privacy ends up being like a way to kind of map out all these different relational dynamics at different scales and to know how to tie together the human rights and the cultural aspect to the legal aspect of what need what the government needs to do the market dynamics of what the what needs to be left up to say apple versus meta versus the uh, the architectures of homeomorphic encryption or everything else all those things have to like be a cohesive strategy uh, and at this point there doesn't seem to be any cohesive strategy or or maybe we can start with a story of me saying all this but then at the end of the day, where do you start to then uh, fight back uh, to be able right. to actually implement some of that? Because, I mean, you know, it, it sounds like we have so, so far to go in this. And it almost seems like the technology is, is moving at a way faster rate than our ability to define privacy. You know, like we're sitting like you, you were kind of talking about privacy, like originally having this like old school perspective of like my privacy is my identity. So it's like as long as what I'm doing is anonymous, then technically I'm private kind of situation. But then we're moving into this world where like all of your actions and all of your like you said, intentions and like the subtles, the subtleties of the things that I choose to, to scroll past or the things that I stay on and how many times I click at like that information is now becoming what we're choosing to define as privacy a little bit less so than, you know, my name and address, so to speak. But you know, but it, but it's also all tied to us, right? And this is one of the things that Meta and Facebook does is they 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 build profiles on us with our identities, right? It's not really it's not really anonymous stuff anymore. It's tagged to our physical and actual identities, right. and and it's placed into databases, and it's and it's sold off to the highest bidder, which is which is kind of wild. It's literally like selling your soul. So you know, like one. So so there's a couple ways I think the general public deal with this, right? There's people like us who talk about it. We yell about it. We try to let people know that these things are happening. Then there's then there's the other part, which are like, well, we're not going to worry about it because the things we're getting are amazing, right? And and like you were saying, Kent, we are we we a lot of times will ignore the problems because we're given such a cool toy, right? And then there's kind of everything in the middle. But you know, I I've often said that I almost wish we we could we. I, I almost wish that it wouldn't evolve so fast and we can figure these things out. And it took another 10 years for VR to get to where it is today, right? And I know that's a very unpopular opinion, but I'm, but I'm also more about um, um, us as people, right? Because someday Zuckerberg isn't going to be running that company. He can only live for so long. Someone's going to come in with their own agendas. They're going to buy Facebook. They're a publicly traded company. They're going to have to sell it if a big enough offer comes in, right? But, but either way, what, you know, Mark gets hit by a bus tomorrow, 
what, what happens, right? But, it, but it's all of these companies coming in and they are pushing VR as well, not because um, they think it's the next, next big thing technically, it, it is, right? But, but they want to collect the data. What, this is very profitable and amazing information that they're able to gather about us and store in databases and companies like Apple, $3 trillion company getting into virtual reality, right? Because we are valuable and what we do and how we think and how we move and what we look at, that's all very, very valuable. So like, how do we, how do we go about starting to combat this, right? I, I like what we're doing now, right? We're having conversations and we're having people listen to these conversations. We're educating, we're trying to help educate the masses to what, what is happening behind the scenes. Um, but, but where, you know, how, what more, what more do we do? What do you think? Yeah, well, this is the the big, you know, $60,000 question or how much ever, $60 million question, I guess. But there's, you know, the when I look at it, I look at, say, Lawrence Lessig's where he's trying to, you know, his pathetic dot theory that he calls it, which I don't think is a great name because it's essentially ways in which that you can make shifts and change in, in the world. And there's the culture and then there's the laws and there's the market dynamics and the economy and then there's the underlying technological architecture and the code. And I think it's a good framework to start with because you're right in the sense that the most power that we have in being able to even have these conversations is the culture. And the culture feeds into the different types of laws that we have. And those laws set the context for what the rules are for the economies to exist. And then from there, you have the technological architectures, which is kind of like the last stop, the last gap to be able to have protection. But that it's all within the context of a cultural system, a legal system, an economic system. Uh, that any of these technical architectures are being built. So because of that, I I feel like there's a lot of movement that's happening within human rights and trying to establish these neural rights as like a new human rights framework to say, hey, we should have these general principles that we should have this right to identity, right to mental privacy, and right to agency, which, you know, it, that, at that point, it becomes a philosophical question to then, like, do we have free will and how do you define this and how do you translate these concepts of like say the right to agency into something that would be um, implementable in a context of a law that could be enforced in any reasonable fashion you know how do you know that how do you define some of these things in terms of like uh, that are age-old philosophical questions as to whether or not we even have free will um, and how would you then translate that into this uh, what what that line is for what things are going to be unethical when I talked to uh, Jonathan Burkhart, you know, the way he phrased it, I thought was really interesting. He said, we know that, like, there's a lot of benefits from this technology of being able to track all this information. You can imagine a, a situation where you're trying to hack your consciousness and become a better person, right? And so there's a lot of the ways that you could use this information to, to make yourself a better person. There's also ways for that information to kind of cross a line and for them to be used in a way that is unduly mapping you and understanding you perhaps better than you understand yourself to then create these situations and contexts that are nudging your behaviors to be able to then subtly undermine your deliberate intentional actions that you're taking into the world. And so how do you define that line and how do you know what, once that's crossed, how do you explain that and how would you put that into a law that was then being able to be enforced by either an oversight committee, the FT, the federal trade commission is the thing that really is looking at privacy issues, but this is kind of like we're, we're living in the aftermath of not doing anything around all of this kind of profiling that has been going on for years and years and years and years. So it's already at the point where they're, they're literally doing all these things I'm talking about, like profiling us and 
you know, capturing our identity. And so then it becomes a matter of like, how do you address this? Is this like a, um, you know, Dr. Anita Allen has this more paternalistic approach about identity, but there's also this, this concept that it's a human right. That's like, if we treat privacy, like it's an organ, that would mean that you would not be able to sell your organs to get access to technology. The libertarian approach of thinking about privacy is that it's your data that you own and you can do whatever you want with it. It's your sovereignty to be able to, if you, it's your choice to be able to enter into these adhesion contracts with these companies to make, to make these different types of choices. But then the question becomes like, should we have these markets? Uh, Shoshana Zuboff's uh, surveillance capitalism is saying, maybe we should outlaw this type of surveillance capitalism because there's a lack of fiducial relationship that's happening between like a good metaphor for what that means is like when you go to a doctor and you give information to your doctor, the intention for that exchange of that information is that they're going to help that doctor is going to help you heal for whatever ailment that you have. But imagine if that doctor is then taking that information and then selling it to an insurance company so that your insurance or provider could deny you coverage for the health that you're getting. That's essentially what's happening with surveillance capitalism is that there's no fiduciary responsibility for you as an individual. The company could take that information and profit however they want to. And there's no sort of oversight to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't take this information that is kind of medical information that you can determine lots of different medical uh, rights about what, what some you can detect a lot of um, diseases or whatnot from VR information. So what's preventing Meta from selling that information from insurance companies to prevent people from getting medical coverage? Well, as of right now, there's absolutely nothing that's preventing that from happening because there's no kind of universal approach for how to address these type of things from a, you know, like GDPR is like a uniform approach for trying to uh, address this kind of issues of personal data. But even GDPR is really focused on identity. And we're like, we've been talking about, we're moving what uh, Britton Heller talks about is this concept of biometric psychography. So there's a new class of data that has no long, has never been defined before by the law that needs to be defined to be able to encompass all this biometric and physiological data that is kind of getting away from this concept of only focusing on the personally identifiable information. So information that people identify you as an individual. That is in some ways thinking about it as your identity is a static concrete object that's immutable and we should prevent any leakage of that data that's going to allow people to discover your immutable identity of who you are. Now we're moving into a world that's more, I think, you know, process relational in terms of like you're in the context and there's information that is relevant to that context. And as long as they're aware of that context, they're going to be able to extract all of these kind of movements and what you're looking at and your behaviors to be able to then extrapolate that into a model of your character of who you are, what your likes are, your preferences that then kind of put, into this, you know, big target on your head in terms of allowing you to be targeted by these different ads. So to to figure out how to get in at any one of these areas and to not only philosophically understand the concepts that are at play, but then to then make that next leap, which is to define a law that would then prevent us from kind of sleepwalking into a future where we that line when we know that it's going to be really bad when they cross over it. But to prevent, to define that line and to, to, uh, to understand what it looks like when you cross that line is a part of this kind of larger ethical dilemma that we're, we, we don't have the conceptual frames to do it. So it, it, it ends up becoming a matter of philosophical ways of defining that and, and mapping that problem out. And then from there, how to translate that into the laws. Uh, so that's, 
that's the challenge is that we can sort of intuitively know that this is going to be really bad, but then there's a different, you can't just sort of base all the laws upon, you know, someone's intuition. It has to be, you know, explicated so, in some way. So what fixes, like, I mean, and I know this is a rhetorical question at first, right? But so what fixes it? Like what percentage of the population needs to have that philosophical perspective and that ability to first understand the question or understand the issue philosophically before enough people care you know like what is it do we need to have like a majority or do we just need to have like a small like super like a super squad with you and a bunch of other philosophers and people who like give enough shits to like really dedicate enough time to like providing that framework in a in a way that will make sense to these companies you know or do people have to get pissed off enough in order for like the like the right the riots and like you know like groups and protests you know like like, is there a tipping point where we can see a difference and almost like can like secure our 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 privacy and our safety? Well, it's a I mean, this is a larger uh, problem that's been identified. It's called the technology pacing gap and also the calling ridge dilemma. Uh, the technology pacing gap means that the technology is exponentially increasing to the point where it's hard to have those conceptual frames to figure out how to intervene and the, um, so that's a, that's you know it was defined in 2011, and we're kind of it's accelerating. So it's a larger issue that's that goes above and beyond what we're talking about here with XR. But there's also like the larger political context of what we have in the United States, which is essentially a, an extremely polarized dynamic where um, you know you could argue that one side doesn't want democracy at all, and the other side does, and then we're basically in a stalemate where there's no meaningful legislation that's actually happening. So in some ways, our extreme polarization within the political context of the United States has created a, a situation that is kind of like heaven for any of these tech companies, because there's no short-term outlook that any sort of legislation is going to pass anyway. So they can just kind of do whatever they want. But even if you did solve that problem at the political level, that you did have a functional uh, democracy that, that was actually passing laws, I think probably the European Union is a lot better of a model like that, because they were able to pass something like GDPR, to be able to protect our privacy and they, they go beyond beyond just the sort of the dyadic you know left versus right it's more of a triadic and in fact multi-stakeholders where there's lots of different groups that are involved in forming the laws and passing the laws that then get adopted for each of these different countries um so in some ways meta, the metaphor here in the united states is that the states have the ability to do that um if there's not a federal privacy law then each state has the ability to pass their own law so you've seen a fragmentation of, you know, California and these other Illinois has a biometrics law that's, you know, doesn't go as far as it needs to go in terms of the, you know, biometrics from VR. Um, again, it's all tied to identity, but um, you have the states that are able to do the different types of ways of, of figuring out what those laws are. Um, I think eventually what I expect happening, at least in the short term, is that artificial intelligence is a lot more mature as a technology in the sense that there's a lot more policy discussions that have been happening around how to regulate AI in these types of algorithmically driven algorithmic bias and a um, whole other range of different ethical issues around AI. And there's probably a better, the best chance for something like the neurites to be established would be through like the European Union discussions around artificial intelligence to be able to kind of maybe Trojan horse some of the different stuff that's going to be more forward looking in terms of where the immersive technologies are going so that in the in the context of AI, something gets passed in Europe that then forces the hand of Meta to create new architectures that maybe even change their business model at some point. I don't foresee in the short 
the next five or 10 years to see any significant change in the political dynamics of the U.S. And the reason why that's important, why the U.S. law is important, is because that's where a lot of these companies are based. So they, the way that their home laws are, are set dictates how they operate around the world. Um, so that means that if the U.S. law is very open and liberal, that means that they can basically do the worst types of architectures that you can possibly imagine, and they can export that to other countries. Uh, unless they, like Chile just passed, uh, you know, a neuro rights in their constitution. And it's, uh, for me, it looks maybe a little bit toothless in terms of how they're able to actually put something in, like, imagine if the U.S. Uh, modified our constitution to say that you shouldn't be able to uh, violate our brain data. And, and basically it's trying to establish neuro rights at the level of the constitution. But even at that, even if we did that, there's still like a clause in there that says that except for if people consent. Um, so even in the way that the consent works is that if right. people consent to do that, then that even if you pass something in the constitution, it's not going to change it. So that, this has been like trying to trace down, like what's the approach that's going to be the thing that you can do, but it really has to be like the whole academic community producing literature to say, these are the dangers and the harms that are going to be done to be able to then present that to the legislators to, to do forward looking legislation, doing legislation before the harms are done. And to, to say this is going to be such a, uh, a risk that we need to preventively pass legislation, which has not been the historical standard of how legislation gets passed, to do it and to potentially uh, constrain that innovation. But we're talking about data that used to be classified as medical data. So there used to be very tightly controlled around that. But we're moving into a consumer context where it's basically uh, making all this really intimate data available for anyone, you know, not only just these companies like Meta, but... A third-party developer could have access to all this stuff. And so you have to think about that not only is this being available, like made available in the context of, like, say, all the evils of surveillance capitalism, but you're also, you know, there could be a rogue uh, developer that somehow gets information. Thankfully, I think a lot of the, the third-party developer contracts are preventing some of that information to getting into the hands of the third-party developers, which then asks a very interesting question. If, if Meta is so afraid of some of this data getting into third-party developers' hands— then why aren't we offered those same protections as consumers? Because take a look at their their third-party developer and what the third-party developers are and are not able to do, and then go back and look what Meta are able to do. And there's a pretty significant gap in terms of the type of stuff that they're making available for themselves, but not making available for everyone. You know, so I think it's good that it's there, but it's also illustrating the fact that there's a lot of ways in which that data could be used for harm that there's no real good way to protect it. So... Um, so it's a multifaceted. It has to be the culture and the education, the research. It has to be us talking about it. It has to be a human rights layer and the ethical design frameworks that are more soft law. And then we need new laws that are uh, being able to translate these. Uh, and we need uh, responsible innovation uh, pr uh, programs that are viable, that actually have a connection between innovation that's stage-gated and in dialogue with the audience and the, the, the general public uh, to talk about some of these harms and to release them slowly rather than to kind of unleash them onto the public and to, to kind of like move fast and break things when, when breaking things involved all these, you know, uh, with these neurotechnologies, it, it could be that we should really think closely in terms of like what type of ways are we going to prevent this either at the cultural level, the legal level, um, and the market, the, each of these companies have their own pr philosophies around responsible innovation Meta's happens to be a very much a whitewashing or a, a an ethics washing approach, meaning that they say they're doing ethics, but they're not really. They'll say we're talking to experts and we're consulting to experts, but 
they're actually ignoring a lot of what those experts are saying. They just want to be able to say, oh, well, we're consulting experts in a way that they're checking a box saying that we've right. uh, obligate, we've sort of filled our obligations of all the ethical and moral responsibilities because we've talked to an expert who, by which then we ignore completely everything that they told us, <laughs> but at least we consulted to them. And then at the last, the last uh, sort of um, defense are these things at the technological architecture level. So are there technologies like homeomorphic encryption or differential privacy that are going to make a difference uh, or not because they're going to still have access to the information tied to our identity. So even if they have this kind of business level, some of those tech, some of those architectures are more designed to prevent if the data were to get out into the wrong hands, that they would pr protect you from being identified rather than the type of biometrics um, tracking that they would have otherwise. So it it's an issue, like privacy is an issue that like maps out all these dynamics and I can sort of explain all those things, but then to translate that all that into a law is sort of like the big open question for how to make that uh, into right. something that's going to, to actually have teeth and legs and uh, create a situation where we don't have to wake up afraid that we're going to be exploited for the rest of our lives with these immersive technologies. Right. Skiva, did you have something that you wanted to throw in here? Oh, you know, I was I, I found it funny um, that we were talking about how, how Meta kind of has their own rules for what they're allowed to do, but the devs can't. Um, you know, utilize those same rules. It's kind of like, you know, it even kind of trickles down to us, right? I want to see the playtime on some of the games I have on my quest. And I can't, I can't see my own data, but Meta can see it all. Right. But I'm not allowed to see what I do. And that's pretty messed up when you really think about it, right? And, and you know, we're, we're at a place right now where brain-computer interfacing, you know, like, like we were talking about, is it's on its way. Uh, uh, Valve has components coming out this year um meta has has um uh like wrist strap devices um to be able to read um uh your where your fingers are going to be and to start to guess of of where they're going to be in in a couple milliseconds right there's a lot of interesting bci technologies that's that's coming really really fast and i feel like we're kind of in a race right the tech companies are thinking like we got to get this out before this legisla legislation and any of these laws are able to be formed and passed, right? Because if we can get this stuff out, we can get it to the general public. Um, we're kind of <clears throat> kind of dodging a lot of these bullets, and we're setting a precedence for the future right now. Um, meanwhile, we have a lot of really old people in the government that don't understand the technologies that they're responsible for setting laws for. So we're in a little bit of a strange predicament here, and um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's kind of that's what I kind of wanted to throw in there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good. And I think it's really important to, to kind of reiterate here that like, I really don't think that what we're talking about here is like tin foil hat conspiracy kind of shit, you know, like I think there's a lot of people out there who kind of um, are like quick to just brush this off because it sounds like, uh, that's, man, that's an uphill battle and this is going to be, we're basically fucked anyway, you know, like there's not a whole lot we can do and, uh, you know, whatever. They already have my data. You know, I hear a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, this company does it. This really company does this it. As, yeah. as seriously as we're kind of taking it in this conversation. Um, Kent, what would you say to someone who kind of gives you some pushback like uh, the examples I just gave? Well, I wanted to maybe embody a uh, to steel arm the uh, you know some some more skeptical perspectives because I think there are it, in order to really come to a, a firm like approach, you do need to have the the contrary perspectives. And so I'd say that Cory Doctorow is somebody who's been articulating the more skeptical take on surveillance capitalism. And so what he is saying is that look, these companies of 
face meta facebook you know like whatever you want to call it like in the history of when meta was facebook they were lying a lot about their their views they start overstating what they're what they're able to do with the technology and but they can't really you know understand what we're thinking they can't model us we're not us as humans we're not mathematical entities we can't be modeled to that degree and even if they could it would be a historical model it wouldn't be what we want to do in the future so there's kind of a, and I agree with the sense that we're not mathematical entities that are deterministically going to be able to be modeled in their past behaviors and to understand what we're going to be doing in the future. And I, I like the, what, and at, for, first of all, I don't think that Cory Doctorow specifically is up to speed with all different things of like what the future of neurotechnologies and brain computer interfaces and the control labs EMG um, when I talked to Thomas Reardon, and he was the director of neuromotor interfaces for the what was the time Facebook Reality Labs research. Um, so what they, you know, what they're emphasizing is that they're able to detect the firing of individual motor neurons, and they're thinking, well, you're just it's like hand movement. So what's the big deal, right? It's like you're just seeing where your body's moving. But I think the challenge is that when you start to do the types of sensor fusion, that when you have what you're, you're moving your fingers, but it's in the context of knowing everything that you're in, they know where your body position, they know what you're looking at. And at the IEEE in 2021, there was a paper from Facebook Reality Labs that was about how they created an environment where they were looking at how they were doing head movement and hand pose, but they were also doing that in, with other people, and they were able to do a machine learning model that they had eye tracking. So they're able to see where people were actually looking with eye tracking and looking at where their head movement and their hand movement was. So then they were able to take that machine learning model and apply it into a VR headset without any eye tracking and still to a very high degree of confidence, understand where people were looking just by looking at their head pose and their hand pose. So with head pose and hand pose, you're able to extrapolate eye gaze. Eye gaze is huge. I mean, that's like the 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 main thing that they want to know is what you're paying attention to what you're looking at and if they could create a you know this model may be very dependent into that same context i don't know how generalizable it is but generally they're probably come up with a way to say when people are moving their hands and pointing at something and they're moving their head in a certain way they may be able to know what you're looking at so that gives a larger impulse of this sensor fusion that's happening here that even individually, if you're only looking at like, I'm moving my finger like this, what's the big deal? It's just body movement. But when you tie that body movement in with your emotional reactions, with your different ways of mental models of what you may be thinking and, uh, and tied with what your intentional actions are in the context of an, a, a virtual environment, all that stuff together, they're coming up with a pretty, and they, they've explicitly said this is what they want to do. They want to do what they call contextually aware AI. Contextually aware AI is aware of your context at all times. And it's your environment, what you're thinking, all this stuff. It's like the, I don't know if this should be a good design goal. I don't know if I want contextually aware AI. Maybe I want like AI that's only like only there for when I, when I choose a context that I want it to be, not just consistently, persistently, always aware of where, what I'm doing and what I'm thinking. Maybe that'll lead into some sort of utopic vision of technology where we just say something in technology knows exactly what we mean. I mean, common sense reasoning within AI is very difficult because it's difficult to understand how to model context in a way of language and the, the surrounding environments. And even if it was environmentally connected, I could be talking to you about my job and profession and all of a sudden I could be talking to you about my family and all of a sudden I've switched context. And like, what is the way that you know that all of a sudden 
I'm talking to uh, you, and you, when I say scripting, uh, that I mean JavaScript and you know coding. Or if right. I'm talking to my brother-in-law, who's a, a screenwriter, that that script means like the script he's working on. So even a contextually dimension of contextually where AI, in terms of linguistics and pragmatics, means that it's you know there's contextual dimensions that are like just a, a turn of a phrase that can change the context. So the idea of having AI that's that's aware of my context at all moments is extremely dystopic because it means that it would have to be uh, listening to us to that degree to really understand what that context is. Um, so I think the when you when you also look at the, uh, the egocentric data capture that would need to be required to be able to train that type of model is was part of where they're going with all that stuff. So the when you think about like all those different aspects of the uh, you know, being aware of our context and uh, trying to, you know, I guess put limits as to where where you want to stop that some of that stuff from happening. Um, it's um, yeah, I think the the strategy is to try to. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I lost the I lost the train of thought of the original uh, question. So, so my question was, um, uh, my question was, um, you know why should people care right oh right right so the the skeptical okay i remember sorry i lost the thread there uh the skeptical the skeptical argument would be to say that um that these are snake oil salesmen and that what they say they can do they can't actually do and even if they could model you to that degree that they want to model you all that contextually aware that that's that the the skeptical perspective was like they're never going to be able to do that that it's very difficult to do that, even if they could. And so there are going to be limits and also that we're not, you know, deterministic mathematical entities that are going to be able to be uh, modeled. And then there's the other skeptical arguments to say, well, maybe we don't even have free will. So when we talk about our right to agency, then maybe that's already an illusion that we don't actually have. And so what's, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, how would you put some boundaries around what already exists in terms of the types of persuasion that we have in our culture and especially in the context of technology. So there's very pragmatic limits in terms of like, even though these sound like great ideas for what we want, there's difficulty in being able to, to robustly and specifically define it in a way that is able to, you know, take something as high a level as right to agency, right to identity. Identity is very relational. So it, our, our context that we're in defines who we are when we're with our parents, we talk differently than when with our friends, than when we're in a professional context, than when we're in a religious context, than when we're with, you know, a whole, uh, our friends, you know, our romantic partners. Each of these are distinct contexts that um, that's difficult to get a good, you know, handle on. So, you know, how would you really uh, robustly define all those in a way that is is clear? So that's the challenge of even if something like the Chile's interpretation of the uh, neural rights is so broad that would basically outlaw all XR technologies because you're saying you don't want to use any of this brain data for anything at all, which would include, you know, brain, you know, BCIs or XR technologies as we move forward. So, you know, it's important to be able to, to have that dialectic, the, those debates, because it's not like they're wrong. Uh, but at the same time, to sort of dismissing this outright and saying we're never going to be able to come up with a model, therefore we should do nothing, is kind of like encouraging us to, again, 
potentially live into a situation that's extremely dystopic. So mm-hmm. at what point do you intervene, I think, is the, is the challenge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think when, when talking to Kent Bai and, when, and to understand Kent Bai, I feel like your perspective, like, almost always comes back to your, like, roots and process philosophy. You know, like, a lot, I feel like if you're able to wrap your head around the difference between um, process philosophy and um, substance metaphysics, that's it, right? Those yeah. are, like, the two. So... First of all, or uh, it's actually the analytic tradition of philosophy <laughs> that's based upon substance metaphysics and the process relational metaphysics is kind of a foundation of process philosophy. So it's like the main strand of philosophy is the analytic tradition. There's also the continental tradition, but those are the two kind of main ones. And, and I guess mainstream philosophy right. is, but there's other ones, pragmatism and other kind of non-Western philosophies that are out there as well. But the we're process philosophy it. is a unique that way. We're so going to go keep ahead. it here for now with these two, you know, just to, because I feel like, <clears throat> I feel like people who maybe are new to philosophy or who are just starting to attempt to think in a, from a philosophical perspective, I feel like they almost, and I feel like maybe as like babies, we're almost like defaulted into this, like, uh, immediate perspective of reality as this like substance based thing you know where like the stuff that i am seeing and encountering is what's real because it's here i see it every day like i mean it's how do you argue with this microphone you know like here it is so but before we dive into that just a little bit because i do think it 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 really helps to kind of pull it back to this point so we can better understand a lot of these things that we're talking about I am curious, do you have a definition for philosophy? Like if someone came up and like, you're like, yeah, I like philosophy. And they're like, what's philosophy? Like, what's, what's your, like, explain like I'm five definition. <laughs> well, um, for me, philosophy is a lot about these kind of unspoken worldviews and beliefs about what you personally believe, what the nature of reality is, and your relationship to how you gain knowledge and what you find valuable it's it's a way of kind of evaluating all these um, worldviews and, and defining them and kind of understanding how to navigate them. Because uh, the thing about philosophy also is that it's non-falsifiable. So it's basically giving you permission to believe a lot of things that have actual great disagreement within the philosophical community. I mean, whether or not we have free will or not whether or not consciousness is emergent from our physical being or whether or not there's, it's more of a fundamental field or whether or not consciousness lives in every little bit of matter that somehow gets pulled together. Um, and, you know, what is the nature of reality? Is it the reality only this physical stuff or is, is the different types of experiences that we have within VR just as genuine and just as real as anything else outside of VR? And so I think the philosophers have been trying to kind of map out this landscape of these ideas and from there on top of that philosophy has you know out born out of it science and so many different other practices that started as philosophy but then eventually maybe evolved into other domains that are uh you know from like newton and and you know the process of science science itself has a philosophy of science so uh there's a underneath it a, a number of different assumptions that need to be made around how are you going to share knowledge and what, what knowledge means in a communal process? And the scientific method defines that. But there's alternatives to that in terms of 
maybe you have personal experiences that can't be falsifiable and it's a one-off. And so they, that doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that it's not sort of meeting the same standard of objective science. Or you have to use qualitative methods that, you know, there's still ways of getting access to some of that stuff, but it, it helps you orient like what you're, it puts language on these things that allows you to navigate um, some deep assumptions that people have that they intuitively will make already in terms of their worldviews and their beliefs. And it just gives you a way of not only uh, evaluating where people stand in terms of this long history of philosophical thought, but also, you know, the more you get into philosophy, the more that you sort of are, are faced to try to really challenge your convictions philosophically, because there's often ways in which that there's a counter argument that you need to also be able to uh, to uh, consider. And so it's being able to sit in that tension of the opposites, meaning that you have two competing views and that you almost have to channel switch because they're mutually exclusive oftentimes. You can't believe both at the same right. time because they contradict each other. And so you have to be able to be like, well, for some contexts, I believe that the nature of reality is made of uh, physical stuff. Like when I get hit by a car, I'm going to go to like the to the hospital because I'm not going to, you know, challenge the, uh, whether or not this car actually exists or whatnot. And it's like, well, it, you, <laughs> you need to go to the hospital, right? There's not a philosophical matter at that point, but there are matters that, that do end up having, um, you know, this definition about what's real or what, what's not real will end up playing forth in terms of what laws are set. Um, this is an example as a, there's a first amendment, law there's an interpretation from the supreme court around the first amendment that's established like the fighting words doctrine that means that when you're face to face with someone and you say something that instigates like violence or something like that then that's actually not protected uh free speech right if you're face to face and it, it, it it's what's called fighting words i don't know how they define the fighting words but one of the preconditions is that it leads to physical violence like face to face but that same type of definition online doesn't carry and oftentimes the first amendments towards the government right so if you are somehow in an online context and talking to the government in that same way or talking to other people uh there could be a different context under which that's ruled by the context under which like meta's website they have a terms of service right and so that would be ruled by them rather than the first amendment rights but generally there are sort of protected rights of free speech and then unprotected free speech rights but that sometimes those those protections that they shift based upon whether it's in a virtual context or in a physical context and i think as we move forward the value of having a philosophical perspective is that we need to start to define what some of those differences are because we have to know whether or not some of the existing laws uh, need to be uh, applied in some of these virtual contexts or new laws need to be applied in these virtual contexts and the ethical frameworks that help you decide, you know, whether it's the consequentialist, like see what the actions are or the consequences are, whether it's a deontological approach, which is what the rules are and the principles that you're trying to follow, or whether it's a virtue ethics in terms of what virtues you're trying to live into as a human being to kind of like live into some sort of ideals of those principles. Like there's different ethical frameworks even, uh, and that, you know, as we move into the virtual contexts, how do you decide how to apply these? Because they may be, you may be, um, let's say killing a virtual being in a virtual context, which is a different than a murder when you kill someone and they're dead. So what's the difference between those two? The philosophical approach forces you to define what's the difference between physical murder and virtual murder 
and the different types of virtual violence and physical violence. And then there's the gamer's dilemma, which then sort of whatever you say for how you establish violence, now apply the, the same exact thinking and rationale to pedophilia and see if you came up with the same answer. And to see, is there a difference in terms of how we react to virtual pedophilia and real pedophilia? Uh, because there's pretty universal uh, di- dismissing that there's that virtual pedophilia is not okay. And I agree and concur with that. But what's the difference between that and violence? Because then if you say that, then... One of my favorite questions. This is so... one of my favorite questions. <laughs> I have asked people who don't want to be asked that question, that very question. It's a very uncomfortable question. It's un- uncomfortable, but it's yeah. a really important one. Yeah. And and to, and to, and I guess what you're saying here is that philosophy and being a philosopher is being able to sit into that space and be like, "But for real, though, what is the difference?" And and chew on it for a while. And I mean, I guess ultimately, d- discover it. You know, I mean, like, can philosophy come to conclusions on its own, or does something else happen as a result of what philosophy is doing? There's there's a lot of debates within the philosophical circles as to whether or not there's been any progress in philosophy since Plato, right? Like so, like <laughs> like there's debates. There's actually debates as to whether or not there is progress. Um, yeah. I, I think that there there has been in the sense of how philosophy often gets translated into other domains and other ways of just even being able to to scope out some of these different things. I mean the this new book of Reality Plus, the uh, you know that I got early access to by David Chalmers. It's the virtual worlds and the, and the problems of philosophy, it comes out on January 25th. And for anybody who's interested in listening to, up to this point, I think you'd really oh, enjoy yeah. this as a book because it's a, it's an introductory course to philosophy uh, while also asking a lot of provocative questions about the nature of VR while also tying into a lot of pop culture and science fiction. Um, but also I think, you know, making some original arguments around the nature of reality well, and, I, and whether or not we live in a simulation. I do want to dive into some of this book, but I do want to make sure that we have a good understanding of yeah. you know, our new mental framework, right, as process philosophers. So, you know, we're basically, we're looking at the idea and, you know, we're talking about philosophy and like, and about reality, you know, like what's real and what's not real and what's more real or what's less real, you know, and, and um defining what what is real defining what what it takes to be real i think is something that it kind of needs to happen in order to like really be able to give any kind of qualitative distinction you know i when i learned about the platonic um perspective it's always been something that's resonated deeply with me you know and they had such a simple answer it was just that something that lasts longer is more real than something that doesn't you know, and then they had their own like approach or whatever of of kind of determining what it means to last, right? But um, you know, I, I my understanding at this point is that process philosophy claims that the the things that are happening are more real than the objects in which um, those things are being driven by or or um i don't know if i'm saying this the right way but it's like there's the stuff that's happening and there's the stuff that's doing the stuff that's happening and process philosophy almost leans more into the stuff that's happening as being more real than the the stuff that's bouncing around over here causing it yeah i guess i'll I'll try to take this from another tracks i think the substance metaphysics tends to look at the world as these static concrete objects that have properties under them 
whereas a process relational approach sees that the world is in dynamic flux and that's constantly changing and shifting and that it's sort of moving into one thing to the next. And so when you take an, a, a kind of an object-oriented approach around consciousness, you can at the extreme say that, that your consciousness is an illusion, that it's just the result of this physical stuff and these neurons firing, and your phenomenal experience of what your experience is is not real. It's sort of the, you know, Descartes had the evil demon. It's a, the equivalent of having an evil demon that's sort of manipulating you, and that, that experience of that phenomenal consciousness is an, an illusion. And because it's an illusion, it's not real. Uh, so that's sort of the eliminative materialist perspective. Then there's the physical reductionist a- approach, which is saying that you do have a, 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 a consciousness, but it's a neural correlates of the consciousness. So meaning that there's, it's a result of all these brain firings that are happening in your brain, and that's where the consciousness is coming in, even though they haven't been able to kind of find all of the gaps. But that, from their perspective, could be a matter of resolution, that you don't have enough close resolution to see all the firings because there's billions of, of, of neurons firing all in sort of ways it's like an orchestra and you're trying to reconstruct an orchestra that's happening in a football field and you're two miles away. You know, like you're trying to get into your brain that you don't have full access to the full resolution as to what's happening. So it may be that the uh, physical, uh, like the reductive materialists are correct and that our consciousness is purely a result of all these brain neurons. David Chalmers comes in and says, like, look, you know, Descartes basically created this uh, bifurcation between the mind and the body, saying that the only thing that he knew that could actually exist was his mind, because he didn't know if the external world could actually existed. You know, there could be an evil demon, it could be an illusion, it could be a dream. It's this skepticism about the external world that kind of creates this dualism of, like, we know that we have a mental world, but the physical you know reality is different and those are the mind body split and there's a bifurcation for a long time but more and more we have a fusion of the ways in which that they're interacting and dualism isn't a popular uh view however it does come back in the context of if we're uh, living in a simulation and we have a biological entity that is external to this world then that could be a mechanism by which that you can think about when you go into a vr experience how your consciousness feels like in that world, but your physical body's in this world. Maybe that's like as a metaphor for what this kind of like uh, Cartesian dualism is, is that we have a, a, another biological entity outside of this world and everything that we're experiencing is being purely uh, in the simulated world. That's the matrix, right? Yeah, the matrix. Uh, But the, the, the more, I guess, process relational approach kind of, well, the, there's process relational and David Chalmers. Chalmers says that this is a hard problem that maybe of if you're saying that the nature of reality of all these bits of matter being added together, that's 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 the only thing that you have as your Lego building blocks for reality are these physical matter, then how do you get consciousness? How do you get this phenomenal narrative right. of your experience out of stuff that would be basically like, why would a, a pair of bricks have a phenomenal experience? It's just as likely as a, <laughs> a, a bunch of rocks being put together to have a phenomenal consciousness than humans. Then what is what is that? And so he terms it the hard problem of consciousness because there's this big leap to try to go from this physical stuff into consciousness. So he says, well, maybe consciousness is a fundamental aspect of the nature of reality. It's a fundamental field that becomes another Lego building block that you can build from. So you have different approaches like pan-experientialism, saying that all of reality is this level of experience. Panpsychism, which says that every little bit of matter has a, a little bit of consciousness that's added together when you put it all together. And so the, the issue of consciousness 
is uh, one catalyst to something like a process relational approach. Because process is all about like you think about when you go into a VR simulation, a VR experience, you have a frame rate, right? So there's a way in which that there's 90 frames a second. It's sort of a loop that's iterating, right? And then from there, you have the haptics that you have, uh, which is like one to two milliseconds or something like that, that you can feel things that are very, very, uh, I think our touch is like the most sensitive when it comes to that. And then you have the sight at a certain frequency, and then you have your hearing uh, so you have all these senses that are happening at different perceptual loops, and it's all being fused together somehow, magically, through percepts that we're able to then, through the predictive coding model of neuroscience, be able to have a model of the world, and then basically take all that sensory input and then send, like fuse it together and create new models of the world. So our brain is sort of functionally a, a prediction machine that is iterating, that's constantly updating what that uh, that new model of reality is. So... That's part of the the catalyst to say that, you know, in order to really understand some of these basic fundamental things, you have to take that more iterative process approach because that's sort of the way that we understand the world through consciousness. But it also, it could go down to the layer of reality, meaning that um, you have a quantum events that are happening in some sort of potentia, and then somehow from those potentia is collapsing into reality. So there's a lot of the the main uh, theories around quantum mechanics for the small and then the general relativity for the big. So how do you match the big and the small together? And that's been basically the grand unified theory that's been the physics folks have been uh, uh, chasing for a long, long time. These are two different mass structures. You can think of it as like pseudo Riemannian uh, structure here for uh, 4D uh, space time. And then you have like, you know, an infinite dimension Hilbert space that is quantum mechanics. And so how do those two mass structures combine? What a lot of folks think is that what's most likely is that space-time's emergent out of the quantum substrate. So you have an infinite dimension, uh, Hilbert space, or whatever it ends up being, and then it sort of collapses into a, a metrical space-time. So what we're seeing are these objects, but what processes philosophy is saying is that there's actually things that come before those objects, and those are those processes that are unfolding, that are in the realm of potential, and then from that potential that you can see these objects as more of a a continuation of processes that are unfolding rather than a static object that is concrete and unmutable. It's everything is sort of like lives and dies. Nothing lasts forever. And it's, it, it, there's different scales of these processes that are unfolding. The earth is unfolding in a certain scale. Mm -hmm. We're unfolding at a certain scale. Our consciousness moment. Your, uh, moment. In one of your talks, you showed this like pool with like all of the water like rumbling and like resonating and like kind of like sloshing together a little bit and that was being used to illustrate like the potential you know and like all of yeah. the everything and then it's when those waves kind of collide and pew, shoot some water up in the middle like that is like the like the tangible reality or whatever you know the experiences you know that we happen to see and it's like i thought that did a good job of kind of of uh illustrating you know like here's like the everything kind of sitting underneath the surface you know like existing sure but not exactly what is being perceived i guess and then these things kind of happen to collide and shoot up these little spurts up that kind of come up above the, the surface yeah yeah that was called the concentric wave singularity which was basically a pool that was a circular pool and you have these things resonating at a certain frequency and then eventually you're able to create a 90 foot wave of water from all these yes. waves adding together so you have um, constructive and destructive interference with waves and so the idea as a metaphor that at a at a layer of um kind of the quantum substrate is sort of you can think of it as frequency domains uh, as ways of these 
waves of potential, this potential are basically a possibility of what's possible. And what process philosophy, what um, Whitehead was trying to make this differentiation between what is actual and what is possible and the sort of potential. And the, there's a couple of different uh, quantum, uh, quantum mechanics interpretations. One is the, found, the uh, foundations of relational realism by Epperson and Zephyrus, and the other is by Ruth Kastner about a transactional approach. And both of those are trying to uh, essentially say that like a lot of, you know, a naturalistic approach would say that the only thing that's real is metrical space-time, meaning there's no kind of like supernatural non-local uh, fields of, of, you know, beyond space and time. Like there's nothing beyond space-time. But there's certain anomalies within quantum dynamics when it comes to quantum entanglement that has this kind of spooky action at a distance, meaning that there's uh, entities that are communicating with each other in some way that there's information exchanged between them where um, they're kind of correlated in a way that goes beyond the distance of the speed of light, meaning that is kind of violating some fundamental principles of what we understand the limits of metrical space-time is the speed of light is a hard limit. You can't go faster. But non-local uh, quantum entanglement is violating that. So there's certain ways in which that the, if you only say that we have the substance is the only thing that's real, there's nothing beyond space-time, you have to answer, well, explain these kind of quantum anomalies. Uh, and so it's from those quantum anomalies that you have these uh, interpretations from quantum uh, mechanics. And quantum mechanics is understood mathematically for a long time in terms of what these equations are saying. The challenge is, what does it mean? What's the deeper story for what's happening with those equations? And I think that's part of the challenge of, of most of the meaning-making structures have been set within the substance metaphysics framework, meaning that when you look at it, it's incomprehensible because it doesn't make any sense for what is essentially a kind of Boolean logic, meaning that anything can be true or false, but you can't have the cat alive and dead at the same time. Right. The Schrodinger's cat is a famous example. And so the, that's sort of a Boolean logic that we have. Where, but the non-Boolean logic is ways in which that there's many possibilities that are kind of superimposed on top of each other, and that that's sort of the superposition uh, and the complementary nature of the wave-particle duality that you don't know what the, is happening until you measure it. But they're basically both things happening at once until you you create a context under which that you collapse it. So that's another big thing around process philosophy is establishing and uh, the importance of context that it's not just input-output. Like we like to say, like this is an object, this is me, and that's the object. That's basically like this dyad. But what's important about quantum mechanics is that you can never have an input and output in absence of a context. So it's a triadic, it's a move towards a triad. Mm. So you have to implement the context in order to have any quantum measurement. And in a book, uh, Timothy Eastman's Untying the Gordian Knot, he's making the argument that that triadic relationship of context is actually uh, expanding to all of reality, that you can't understand reality absence of the context. And the problem with reductive materialism is it often, it often tries to collapse that context and try to turn things down into sort of a reductive set of numbers. But always, even in the when you do that, it's always within the context of something that is being right. often ignored. And so that's why I think these, uh, you know, Whitehead has this concept of myriology, which is trying to establish these holes and parts and try to create with a math structure that allows you to have this kind of nested sequence of things that are kind of in top, uh, within each other. And it's within that nested sequence that uh, the holes and parts where the kind of the mass structure of process lives, meaning that there's large processes that are unfolding and then smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller processes. So given that as a math kind of metaphor, it helps you to understand things like privacy, things like the, the relationship between our culture and our laws and our 
uh, you know, the, the, the economic aspects and the technological architectures, all the things I was talking about before, is sort of nested into these nested uh, mereological whole parts of our, uh, of, of reality, but that it ends up being a very useful frame when looking at quantum ontology, because um, category theory is another example of a relational approach to mathematics. Set theory is more of the, the kind of the more object-oriented approach, and the uh, category theory is more structuralist or relational. So a lot of this more relational approaches of the foundations of relational realism is using like sheaf theory and category theory to establish the, the local context and the global context, and to see how there's different ways in which those two contexts are related to each other through the math structures of category theory, which are more robust than, say, trying to reduce things down into like a Boolean logic. Mm-hmm. So category theory is uh, you know, proving to be very fruitful in terms of maybe providing the foundations of mathematics, but it's also got this kind of inherent, they call it the algebra of relationships. The, the, uh, and so it's got a relational approach. Uh, that when I was talking to David Chalmers, he was talking about structuralism as a, a, a big, his big thing is that, you know, nature of reality is sort of structuralism in this book. Uh, but, you know, I think the structuralism in terms of math is a category theory. And at the, underneath that, I say maybe there's a deeper process relational uh, approach that's even below the kind of structure. So you have the, the processes and then you have the structure and then you have all the reality. Nice. You know, sometimes I like... I feel like I am in a a reality that is a five sensory perception prison. You know, it's like, I'm like, oh, wait a second. Like my context for this conversation and for every conversation I've ever had is based on what my ears, eyes, nose, mouth, and nerves can tell me, you know? And I often like dream and imagine of like shit that's flying around in this room right now that I don't have a sensory perception organ for. And if I did... And if it did, if it existed, and if I did have the ability to interpret that, in what ways would that kind of shatter my current perspective of reality or my current understanding of things? And I'm just curious, have you ever, um, you ever think about, about this kind of stuff in, from that perspective of like, you know, we're kind of, uh, I, I feel very limited in my ability to comprehend this, and it's almost like, I don't know, that, that I'm, I'm missing a lot of tools to, to to be able that I mean things that are like measurable to be able to kind of um, dedicate myself to any one way of looking at things. Well, I mean the the way that David Chalmers uh, talks about this in his book is that he uses the metaphor of like a simulation theory, you know, to like if you have a lot of very strong commitments about the nature of reality then he sort of, as a thought experiment, provokes you into this series of questions of like, okay, well, if do you think we live in a simulation, yes or no? If you have an absolute, like, hard no, there's absolutely no way, well, then what about this? Can you prove philosophically that we're not in a simulation? And then when you step through that, then you have to kind of, like, step through, like, oh, boy, well, let's see, if we were in a perfect simulation, uh, well, if, we, if there was in like the simulation like the Matrix where there was glitches in the Matrix, then we'd be able to find one of those glitches, right? Or maybe they'd be the, the creator of, the, of this simulation would be able to show, show us a source code and be able to have these supernatural powers that would be like clear evidence that we have it. But in the absence of having that, if we're in a perfect simulation, there's no positive information that we can know for sure or not whether or not in a simulation. So then we're stuck with, well, if, if we're in a perfect simulation, then there's no way to to prove that we're not in a simulation, and you, then then you have to sort of accept that we might be in a simulation already. Mm. 
And then I think in this book, what Chalmers does is saying, okay, given that, let's reevaluate all these uh, philosophical arguments. Oh, you said that there's absolutely no God. Well, what if you live in a simulation? Then there's going to be some sort of godlike entity. Well, what does that change your view of whether or not there was a creator or whether or not there was a demiurge, as he calls it in the book? Um, so he sort of goes through, and then at the end, he goes into the foundations where he's really trying to abstract out, like, you know, Descartes kind of put this challenge in the world that the external world doesn't exist. And it's been a problem in the philosophy for hundreds of years that there's been no comprehensive philosophical argument to prove for sure that the external world exists. Because all of this could be a sol solipsistic world where everything's being constructed, like we're in the Truman Show, right? And all of you are AI beings in that we're, I'm being manipulated by some sort of like evil demon-like entity, but in this virtual simulation that feels so real, but it's at this kind of perfect level. So you, you kind of go through these uh, different stages of trying to break down like, okay, is the un underlying nature of reality, is it substance? Is it these digital ones and zeros if we are in a simulation? And then if it's one, or is it these math structures that are there? Or is it consciousness? Or what I would throw in there is that there's uh, elements of, uh, of process. And so you're, you're faced with trying to have limited access. You don't have complete access to the non-spatial temporal realm. You can't have direct access to these platonic forms if they are in this ideal realm. And so you're faced with what uh, Chalmers talks about here is this Kantian humility, meaning that you have limits in terms of what you can and cannot know about the, na the full nature of reality. You can only have a certain limits to what you can know about the world through this, your senses and all the other methods of using science even. So there's going to be a hard limit about what you can absolutely know for sure. And then there's always going to be like maybe a layered one layer below that where we have to make a series of assumptions that's just beyond what you can perceive or not perceive. And maybe through VR, we'd be able to train ourselves to be able to see these kind of extrasensory perceptions. I mean, that maybe we'll unlock different aspects of precognition or psychic abilities. I mean, who knows what's possible with the latent human potentials that we have seen indications of from the literature, from uh, different, you know, like folks, researchers like Dean Radin has been looking at this from the Institute of Neuroic Sciences and has written a number of books uh, looking into different evidence here. But um, that's all speculative in terms of this type of latent human potential. What we do know is that we have limits to our perception and that philosoph we have to, at that point, make a series of philosophical assumptions. And those series of assumptions, or there's a lot of those assumptions, but some of those assumptions lead to certain outcomes. And I think part of my uh, leaning away from substance metaphysics is because there's ways in which that we've reductively treated the world and kind of like subject-object in a way that we're essentially leads to destroying the planet because we're not in right relationship to the world around us. We've kind of abstracted that out. Like we can extract these uh, objects away from our relationship to the world around us. Whereas the process relational says that relation is the most important thing and that we need to be not only in relationship to the world around us and to the earth around us and to ourselves, uh, but to also to other people uh, and to look at through that lens of relationship as being the ultimate nature of reality is that because there's these quantum substrates belong, beneath these substances that we don't quite understand, but we can at least have enough mass structures to indicate that there's something that goes deeper than that, in that non-spatial, temporal, non-local realm. And as Chalmers says in this book, we could be 42 layers deep into the simulation. We don't know like what that base reality is. We could be incepted into like many, 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 many different layers of that. And the only thing we can see is our simulation or our world, our reality, and then a little bit of some indication of one layer below us that we can see some artifacts from, but not completely. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, that's the philosophical journey is to like figure out what your commitments are and to evaluate each of those different, you know, possibilities. And I think that's why the Chalmers' book, Reality Plus, is so effective is because he kind of steps you through that, like step by step using VR, but also using kind of like an intro to philosophy framing to kind of like take you through that journey to be able to kind of maybe build up some of that capacity of understanding what you're really committed to. And I read the book and I changed my mind about stuff and I wasn't expecting that to happen, but that's the kind of power. Yeah. It seems like this book kind of uh, made some waves for you. You know, I feel like you got, you got a little bit excited about, about this one, you know, which I think is amazing. Like, what is it like? What was, I mean, you know, what is it about, about this that stands out the most that you think has kind of made the biggest impact? Well, Chalmers really, contextualizes VR within the larger historical philosophical debates that have been happening for hundreds of years. So he's contextualizing VR and saying that these are genuine realities, which is not the normal view. The normal view is like from Mel Slater's view, saying the place illusion, the plausibility illusion, the, the virtual body ownership illusion, that these are illusionary. But one of the things that Chalmers says is that for, well, for expert users, they don't feel like they're being tricked. They just feel like this is their reality mm-hmm. when they're in these immersive worlds. So a lot of the origination of these kind of language around illusions was done in the context of academia that people didn't have VR home headsets in their home. And so when they're walking into the lab, they're being tricked because they're not doing it day after day after day. But anybody who's a sufficient you know, regular user of VR knows that these experiences are just as genuine and real as any other physical experiences limit with some of the different limits around haptics and everything else obviously there's going to be things that are inclusive and exclusive which he starts to talk about here in the book but on the whole the different ways of which taking action or with our intentional action their agency being able to have mental and social presence being able to have a, a emotional presence and connection to other people and to be able to have a sense of embodiment within these worlds and that when you add all those things together that's kind of the core of what it means to have experiences and to those those experiences get encoded in your brain as memories that are almost indistinguishable as as experiences that happen in the physical reality and so then it it challenges you to think about well what is real if that if if these objects feel real these events feel real these are meaningful experiences these uh you know these uh experiences and and people that i having interactions with that they, they feel just as real and so then it becomes a philosophical question of trying to interrogate okay what is it about your metaphysical assumptions about the nature of reality that maybe needs to shift around how you define what reality is and i think it's it's a compelling argument that i think will it it's um i think it'll make waves within the larger philosophical and also community who i think generally at large the general public still sees virtual reality as a as a form of illusion and then that it's it's sort of a bad path just de facto to go down because there's been thought experiences about the experience machine that would be basically creating your all of these uh, amazing experiences in VR forever, but that when you actually get in, uh, uh, you know, the way that it's framed is not like VR. We have agency and, and action and you can hang out with other people. You know, it's basically like you go get stimulated into like this world where you're all by yourself. You can't decide what you want to see. And, and all these c- ways of framing the experience machine that puts virtual reality into this area that is not desirable and is best and essentially de facto bad because it's illusionary and fake and not real. So it's, it's, I think countering this larger narrative that we have in our culture in a way that's really philosophically grounded, but also like 
challenging people's metaphysical assumptions about what the reality is. Because if you can't, if you, there's no way that you can prove that we're not in a simulation, that kind of opens up the door as to the different types of metaphysical frameworks you could start to adopt. For me, I'm an advocate for one that is a minority, which is the process relational view. And there's ways in which that process relational view can kind of slot into this like structuralist view that uh, Chalmers is taking. It's like maybe there's process, maybe structure, and then there's the, um, you know, the reality that we can observe. Uh, so he calls it the uh, X from, uh, or the a bit from structure from X. So there's structures that we can see the mass structures and that from X means that there could be any number of things that are even below the structure that we we can't, don't have access to. And I think that's what Whitehead was trying to say in terms of his process relational approach is kind of intuiting that there is this deeper impulse be, beneath those structures, which are these processes that are unfolding. Beautiful. So what, what are dreams? <laughs> What's a dream? I think the dreams are a way for you. I mean, Jung and Freud had a lot of aspects of an, analyzing the dreams. And what I see is that it's the, the psyche's way of taking unconscious processes that are happening and trying to give you a story that's trying to uh, provoke you into um, these deeper archetypal dynamics that are, that your, tr your, your soul is trying to evolve in some fashion, you could say, and that's who are we and why we're here. We're, we're souls here that are trying to evolve and grow. And the dreams are a portal that if you read it through a lens to be able to uh, see the meaning of that, uh, then you can maybe unlock some secret messages. And that's sort of the Jungian approach of, of and, and Freud and Jung. Freud uh, kind of pioneered it, a lot of that. And, and, and the Jungian approach, you know, takes that as these messages from your, your deep aspects of your unconscious. Um, I've been involved in the men's retreats where we would wake up in the morning and we would have a dream cabin and people would share their dreams. So then you tell the dream what, what happened in the dream. And then you say, what does that dream mean? What does it mean for you? What do the symbols mean for you? And then you get asked questions by the audience trying to provoke different aspects of the dream. And when you write, when you say the dream, you say exactly what happened. There's no meaning. Just say what happened. Look at the meaning layer. You then get interrogated and then you have it sort of open to try to look at this, the larger universal myths to try to interpret whether or not it's a personal myth or a universal myth. There's some combination there, but it's a, it's a language of um, the, the souls uh, it's the, the images are the language of the soul. And so when you have those language, the, those, those insights, it could be giving you messages the, of trying to unlock deeper aspects or another illusionary thing is it's all just random brain firing doesn't mean anything <laughs> <laughs> i don't know dude i feel like i feel like i'm in like i feel like i'm i just feel like i just went i go somewhere new you know what i mean like i feel like i quintessentially remain the same regardless of whether or not i'm like here having this conversation with you or i'm in a dream having this conversation with you i feel like my behavior doesn't change too much, you know, and I, uh, I don't know, to me, it, it almost, it reminds me of VR in a lot of ways. When I did the meta movie, it felt like I was in a dream. You did the meta movie, didn't you? Yeah. 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 Lucid dreaming and dreaming. I mean, this is an area where I think as we move forward, um, you know, just talk to Joe hunting who spent eight hours a day for a year filming in VR for a movie that's premiering at Sundance called we met in virtual reality. And he said that he was dreaming, uh, in his context was in VR and the people who was interacting with were the avatars. And so I think there's a way in which that we take what's happening in our lives and we start to, to work it out in different ways. 
um, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of the Jungian approach and, and I do think there, there, there can be ways in which that there are, um, things that can be hidden messages that it can be unlocked, but it's, it kind of takes, sometimes it takes a community to help unlock those things. Um, so yeah, but you know, the, the question of essential character and whether or not you change over time, you know, like what parts of you, you know, there's a, a quote from Kierkegaard that says that life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. So you may not know until what was essential to your character until you're on your deathbed. And that you can, when you look back, you could say, this is the thing that, that was definitely immutable and a part of your essential character. And that's the challenge of like understanding the story of who you are and why you're here, because you, your life has to be lived forwards and, you, and there's realms of potential that are unrealized mm. uh, and that you have to understand how to navigate those realms of potential. And I think that's what VR does is it creates these opportunities of these realms of potential to be able to create this context for you to make choices and take action. And there's a question as to whether or not you're able to be enough pressure to simulate the actual situation to reveal an essential part of your character. That's a Robert McKee quote that I use a lot. Um, so yeah, I, it's a question though, that we may not have essential parts of our character. We may be these processes that are continually in dynamic flux and that what we see as static is only static in this moment, but over time it may change. Well, this is so good. Thanks for answering that question, by the way. Might have felt a little out of left field, but I felt like it was relevant. Um, we're about to pull the plug on this thing pretty hard. Um, but before we go, um, I want to ask one last question, and it's that, like, what like, what for you, like, like if you could say, um, like, if you're, like, looking back on your contributions, right, to the space, these conversations, these thought processes, your work in philosophy and ethics and all of that, um, like what would be like, like a, the, the thing that you, that you could say that you did that made you feel good about what you've done? Like, what's the goal, you know, like, what are you trying to accomplish here? Well, I think there's the, you know, from, uh, indigenous perspective, they look forward like seven generations. So when I think about like seven generations from now, that I hope that the work that I'm producing now will be able to be able to give insights into, um, what happened. Uh, but ideally what's happening now to be able to help guide and direct where this is all going. Um, you know, there was a time in my life where, uh, I, there's some things that could have happened that put me on a very different path. And I had a dream about being able to travel and talk to all these different people and put things out into the world. And so I, I hope that, you know, at, at the end of the day that people look back at the body of the work that I've been able to produce and to be able to get either some deep insight about what the essential character of this medium is, and then maybe even learn more about themselves. I mean, the ultimate potential of VR for me is to be learn about more about yourself, the more about your relationships with other people, the more about your relationship to the planet, and the more about relationships to all dimensions of reality. So I think that my work sort of carries that thread of this inquiry for me to learn more about myself, for other people to learn about other people, for you to learn how to be in right relationship to the earth, because if we're not in right relationship to the earth, we will destroy ourselves. Uh, and then there's a lot of questions for what needs to happen in order to like be in right relationship to the earth. And then to be open-minded about all dimensions of reality, because there's so many things that we don't know. We probably know, we probably, there's more things that we don't know than we do know in the long scope sure. of history. <laughs> so uh, holding the tension of the opposites and, and being able to sit with those paradoxes of, of, of not knowing and sitting with those, those opposite things together. I think, uh, you know, I try to loosen up people's minds uh, whenever I can in terms of any fixed ways that they think that they think that the, this is absolutely the way the, way the work, the world works. 
Um, so being able to sit with that paradox, I think, is a, one of the skills that we need in our 21st century. I think VR helps do that. And I hope that there's many different contexts that we're going to be able to understand. Uh, there's different ethical frameworks that put forth different experiential design frameworks and experiential uh, immersive storytelling. So just trying to come up with uh, this potential of being able to experience anything that you want, that VR is an experience machine. So let's create experiences that that are in harmony with where we want to be as a humanity with more connected to ourselves, more connected to other people, connected to the earth and connected to all dimensions of reality. Dude, thank you so much. Thank you for everything that you have said here in the past couple of hours. And thank you for coming on and being a part of our community and uh, being on our show for the third time now. Um, your time means the world to us. You know, we are huge fans and we will continue to be. And uh, I'm grateful to have the time to sit here and connect and to ask these kinds of questions with you. So we uh, really, really appreciate you. man. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, for having me on again. It's always fun to dig into these things. Like I said, you guys are both really deep listeners, and it's always uh, knowledge comes out whenever you ask questions like that. And in just it, the relational, it creates a context for uh, sharing of my own experiences. And uh, and I say things in a way that I've never said them before. So it's always fun to be able to uh, talk to you all and and that deep listening. And uh, yeah you know, we all want to have some legacy in our lives. And so, you know, putting my stuff out in the world and my just, legacy you know. is going to be having Kent buy on my show, <laughs> I had Kent buy on my show three times, four times, five times. As long as we're doing this show, uh, you're going to have a seat here on the between reality shit. Heck yeah. So yep. we normally kick our guests off, but I think you should just ride this one into the sunset with us here. You know, like I think at this point, that's, that's what's most appropriate. Um, so Skiva, how about yes. you just let us know what we are doing next week? Sure. So yeah, next week we actually have two episodes happening since, uh, since we took a break, you know, we're going to ramp it up a little bit here. So, uh, our first guest will be on Wednesday, uh, and it will be, uh, Joanna Popper from, from Hewlett Packard. We did have to reschedule her from before, and so she's going to come on and tell us about, um, you know, what's going on at HP, what's happening with the Reverb G2. Uh, we'll get into some hardware and uh, and the future of what HP holds for virtual reality. Dang, Joanna Popper on Wednesday. Yep. Dude, this week, holy shit, this is crazy, man. <laughs> Kent by on Friday and... Joanna Popper on Wednesday and all of you amazing people every day in our chat, Ashley, Chris, uh, D1360 VR, Quick Cosplay, Nicole, I saw you in there, Matt Fontana, my homie, I saw you in there, Ashley, Person Person, uh, Vivian, I saw you sliding in here at the end, Chroma Snare, Mike Newton, Mepper was here, um, dude, so many, Traveling Man was here, uh, Space Thank Roach, you Thank uh, you so Chris, much. Dude, thank you guys all so much for joining us. We are pulling the plug on this episode now because people have places to go and things to do, but we love you all so much. Thank you for watching the show with us, and we will see you on Wednesday with Joanna Popper. All right. See you later, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.